Uh, I hope as you came in today, you picked up a, a copy of the uh, sermon notes. For the sake of those who are uh, visiting, uh, we are presently in a sermon series entitled, Blessed are the Persecuted. And we're just basically taking uh, several characters uh, in the pages of Scripture uh, that uh, suffered hostility, opposition, and persecution for their faith in Jesus, and examining their lives uh, to discover how God uses persecution, how God uses adversity for the spiritual benefit and development of His child, and also to teach us how to respond in a godly, Christ-like manner when we are encountered with opposition because of our faith or any, again, adversity or suffering. And uh, in this series, we've already looked at uh, Joseph and David, uh, Jeremiah and Daniel, and we will uh, conclude our study of Nehemiah today. And of course, you remember Nehemiah uh, was uh, God's servant uh, to return to Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity and help uh, renew and revive that city. Uh, not only its walls and its buildings, but also uh, to bring them spiritual revival. And the uh, thing that we've been looking at is this uh, incredible project that he undertook to rebuild uh, the walls of Jerusalem, uh, which was a literal mammoth undertaking. Uh, we shared with you that their basic building materials was the rubble uh, from the destroyed walls uh, when the Babylonians came in and invaded. Yet, uh, in 52 days, they accomplished that feat, uh, the rebuilding of the walls, which was basically a two-mile wall around the city at that particular uh, day and age. And uh, they did that despite, you remember, opposition. Uh, we saw the moment they began rebuilding the walls, the moment they began uh, to deal with their reproach and to bring honor and glory to God, opposition came up from every side uh, to try to stop the work, uh, to oppose them. And so we've uh, looked at Nehemiah uh, to draw lessons on how we are to respond to opposition. And if you'll turn over to the back side of your notes, we already covered that first side where we looked at the weapons of the enemy. We looked at eight different ways the enemy attacked Nehemiah to discover how, God, how uh, the enemy will attack God's work today. And in looking at those uh, uh, weapons of the enemy, we also examine how Nehemiah responded to each of those. And again, you can go to our church website to look at any uh, previous uh, messages. And then uh, last Sunday, we began to look at lessons to live by, that back page, lessons to live by today in overcoming opposition uh, to complete God's work. And last Sunday, we covered the first two points there in your sermon notes, and today we'll look at those remaining three points. And then next Sunday, uh, our focus will be on the Apostle Peter as we continue this series on persecution. But let's quickly review those first two points that we saw last uh, Sunday. Uh, point number one uh, that we learned from Nehemiah is accept the fact that opposition against God's work will be inevitable, innumerable, and inescapable. 
But when it comes, rejoice. Rejoice. And why rejoice? Because opposition comes against success, not failure. The brighter God's people shine for Christ, the more visible a target we make for the enemy. And that should not frighten us, but it is a reality that we need to acknowledge. Uh, but we do not fear because Jesus said in Matthew 5, 11, and 12, we do not fear, we rejoice. Why? He says, blessed are you, happy are you, when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad. And why would we rejoice and be glad? For your reward. In heaven is great. So we saw last week that we're never going to be able to escape opposition in doing God's work. But when it comes, we rejoice, knowing that opposition comes not against failure, but against success. And we're to rejoice because of the reward that we have for us in heaven as we stand faithful with God in the midst of that opposition. The second point, when opposition does come... Don't get defensive, but take the offensive through prayer. This is one of the primary lessons we discovered in the book of Nehemiah. Every weapon the enemy threw at him drove Nehemiah to prayer. That next sentence, talk more to God than to your critics. Follow Nehemiah's pattern of prayer found in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Now, last week we read that prayer in its entirety. We examined it in detail, and we discovered that there's a five-fold pattern. So get this down in your notes in case you were not here last week. But this is the way you need to pray, the way I need to pray. When we encounter opposition or hostility towards our faith in Christ, first, Praise God for His greatness. That's where you want to begin. Praise God for His greatness. And why do you do that? Because it shifts your focus from the grim circumstances, the difficulty of the situation, or the hostility that you're experiencing, and it puts your focus, what? On the greatness of God, for whom nothing is too difficult. In other words, it takes your eyes off the size of the challenge of the problem and puts it where it should be on the size of your God. And that is what inspires faith. That is what inspires hope as we go forward. And then the second thing that we saw in that prayer is that we need to then remind God of His promises. Now again, it's not that God needs reminding. To be honest, it's more that we need reminding. Because remember, we have said over and over again that faith is simply this. It's simply weighing, on one hand, the impossibility of my situation, and then on the other hand, weighing the impossibility of God breaking His promise. And then I have a choice. Am I going to light here in despair and worry and anxiety because of what I view as an impossible, difficult, painful situation, or am I going to put my trust in God? who is able to meet my every need and to see me through this situation and use it for my spiritual good and His greater glory. The third thing that we saw in that prayer is the necessity to repent of all sin. To repent 
of all sin. Never forget, if sin goes unchecked, prayer goes unanswered. If sin goes unchecked, prayer goes unanswered. God wants us to become honest before Him, transparent before Him, and we need not fear become honest and transparent before Him because of what the blood of Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. And that's why we're admonished in 1 John 1, walk in the light as Christ is in the light. Walk in total honesty and transparency, and as you do, you'll know what? The blood of Christ cleansing you from all sin, cleansing you from all unrighteousness. And I trust that is everyone's desire here as a believer. You want to be a clean vessel. You want to be a clean vessel through which God can extend his presence in this world to express the lovely character of Jesus Christ, to execute his will and to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then the fourth thing that we saw in that prayer is that we need to then surrender our human inability, surrender our human inability as an opportunity for God to demonstrate His invincibility. And this is very, very exciting because God perfects and demonstrates His power through our weakness. It's not your, your weakness does not disqualify you for ministry. It's the very thing that qualifies you. Because it's in your weakness that we know God's grace. You know, uh, in Hebrews 11, we find there, of course, the great hall of fame of faith. And we read concerning those heroes of faith, listen, this little phrase, from weakness they were made strong. See, it's only in weakness that you discover your absolute dependence upon God. It's only in weakness that you become desperate for God. It's only in weakness that you learn to truly lean on God. So our inability is simply God's opportunity to demonstrate His invincibility. And then the fifth thing that we discovered last week about that prayer is that we need to be specific in our prayers to get specific answers. Be specific in prayer to get specific answers. Now, this is where we ended last week. And one of the most amazing things we discovered, uh, and this was very convicting to me, and I trust it was convicting to you. We looked at the early New Testament church. Uh, we didn't have a long time to do this, but we went to the book of Acts and uh, looked at uh, a couple of Paul's uh, teachings related to this. And, and we, we just asked the question, how did they respond when they encountered hostility, when they encountered opposition, when they encountered persecution? How did they pray when they knew that they could face imprisonment, torture, even martyrdom for Christ? And the amazing thing was, you don't find them praying for deliverance. What did they pray for? Boldness to speak God's word. Their prayer was, God, give us grace not to retreat against the opposition, but to continue to go forward advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ, regardless the price. And they saw suffering for Christ as an honor, as a privilege, as a badge of honor to wear. They said, he did this for me, how can I not do this for him? 
And God wants to grip us with that same spirit and attitude. Now let's move to these three remaining uh, truths or lessons we can learn from Nehemiah. And here's the third one in your sermon notes. Put feet to your prayers. Yes, pray. But we need to do more than prayer. Pray. Put feet to your prayers by staying at the work. You cannot miss this lesson in the book of Nehemiah. It's, it's impossible to miss. The one thing that you see there in your sermon notes, the one thing the opposition never was able to do in the book of Nehemiah was to stop what? The people from working. God's people just continued what? To mix the mortar and pass another brick. No matter what came their way, they refused to be distracted. They refused to be turned from the work. No matter how intimidating the enemy became, uh, no matter how anxious even they became at times and discouraged, they continued plodding forward in the work. And this is a wonderful lesson for you and I. Opposition comes to stop us, to get us off the priority of following Jesus, knowing Jesus, and make him known to others. That is our mission. Nehemiah's mission was to rebuild a wall, to revive a city. Our mission is to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, to walk as Jesus walked, to seek and save the lost, for Christ's life character to be formed in me, to be displayed through me, for me to live and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And just like they refused to become intimidated, refused to cave in to fear, and continued to stay at the work, you and I, despite our fears, despite intimidation, despite hostility, despite opposition, we live to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. We live to advance the cause of Jesus Christ. Uh, turn real quickly to Ephesians 6. And, and keep your Bibles handy. We'll look at several passages in this message, just as cross-references on several points. And um, I can't take long here. I simply want you to see, all, most of you are familiar with the, the wonderful passage on spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6, where it talks about putting on the whole armor of God. What I want you to see, the key phrase... In this entire section is stand firm. That's repeated three different times. He says, when opposition comes, when you encounter spiritual warfare, don't retreat, don't become intimidated like a soldier on the front line. You stand firm, you hold your position for God, and you encounter the enemy, again, regardless the cost, regardless the price. Just look at this. Verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Again, his strength is perfected in our weakness. Put on the full armor of God. Why? That you may be able to what? Stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle ultimately is not against flesh and blood. The devil uses that, but behind that or the powers of darkness, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, that you may be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. 
He repeats it again, verse 14. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So again, we see this truth even in the New Testament. Not to retreat, not to shrink back in unbelief, but to stay true to God, knowing our reward is great going forward, and we can trust Him. Uh, look at another passage. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians. This is a great passage. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. Now, the key focus is the last verse of the chapter, verse 58, but you need to see the context. So let's begin reading at verse 54. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54. But when this perishable, what's he talking about? Body, this flesh and blood. He says, when this perishable will have put on imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. What's he talking about? In the context, it's the resurrection of the body. He's saying you have an eternal home and a glorified body. You're going to live with God forever in an eternal romance with Jesus, ruling with him at his side as the bride of Jesus Christ. And so he says in verse 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Dennis's nephew knew the Lord Jesus Christ. Avis's daughter, Hetty, knew the Lord Jesus Christ. And when both of those individuals died this past week, death was merely a door, a door that opened wide into all the glories of heaven. And that is our security as believers. That is our hope. That is our reality. That is our future. But that should make a difference in the way we live right now. Because notice, he says, therefore, in light of the resurrection, in light of your eternal home in heaven, in light of all of that, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing what? That your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Only what's done for Christ will last, right? Only what's done, only one life will soon be passed. You have one life, one opportunity to build up heavenly treasure. And only what's done for Christ will last. Therefore, what? For to me to live is what? Christ. See, if the point he's making, we don't need to make this complicated. If that is my eternal hope, then that should give me an eternal value system now in the way that I live Realizing if the resurrection is true, there's also a resurrection of unbelievers into the lake of fire. So how can I not, like the Lord Jesus, who gave himself for the lost, how can I not give myself 
to the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ? How can I not be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work in the Lord, knowing that as I am, my toil will not be in vain because there is a heavenly reward? And let's not forget as believers, this needs to be taught on more. There's something called the judgment seat of Christ. In the judgment seat of Christ, you find it in 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5. It's not talking about the judgment of unbelievers. It's talking about when every believer's life will be evaluated before Jesus Christ. And the purpose of that evaluation is not whether or not you're going to know eternal salvation. No, that's secure in your relationship with Jesus Christ. The purpose of the judgment seat of Christ is either reward or loss of reward. The purpose of the judgment seat of Christ is how you, as a believer, used your life in the cause of Jesus Christ. And this doesn't mean that we need to all give ourselves a full-time Christian ministry. No. What that means is you realize no matter where God has placed you, no matter what the workplace is, or the neighborhood that you're in, or the school that you're in, or the team that you're on, whatever, God's placed you there to make Christ known. To live His life out before others. And to aggressively look for opportunities to engage them relationally. To get in a position to share with them the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And how they can come to know and love Him. Let's go to the fourth point. The fourth point. From God's perspective, and this is an important one now. From God's perspective... The character development of his people is more important than the completion of his work. Let me state that again. From God's perspective, the character development of his people is more important than the completion of his work. Now notice that next statement. This is not to say God is not committed to accomplishing his work, but rather an acknowledgement that the success of God's work is dependent upon the purity of God's workers. God does not anoint plans. God does not anoint a phase three. God does not anoint a particular evangelism method or plan. He anoints people that are committed to him that give to a phase three or make Christ known through that particular evangelism method or plan or whatever it might be. God's anointing his own people that are surrendered to him. And you know, when you look at Nehemiah's life, let me just encourage you, you, you can contribute his success to three factors. This, this is not in your notes, so you can, if you want to jot this down on the side. And it's very, very simple. When you look at Nehemiah's ministry, his success rests right here on, on the purity of his heart and life. But you see three specific factors. Number one, listen now, his character was shaped by God's Word. His character was shaped by God's Word. Did you know that in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah himself, he either quotes or alludes to four different books of the Bible. 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and the Psalms. It's very obvious that the Bible, God's Word, was Nehemiah's blueprint upon which he built his life and ministry. And that's how we're to live. It doesn't make any difference if my marriage, if it's my family, or an employer, an employee, or whether it deals with my finances, or it deals with my ministry, whatever. I go to God's Word, and I build everything on the foundation of His truth. And that's the key to God's blessing. That's why Jesus said, hey, are you going to be the wise man or the foolish man? The wise man... He not only heard my word, but what? He acted on my word and therefore built his life and ministry on a firm foundation. And when the storm and the pressure and the opposition and the persecution came, it stood. But he said the foolish man, oh, he came to church. He came to Sunday school. He came to Bible study. He went through the motions. He was a hearer, but not a doer. He didn't act on God's word. And he was like a foolish man that built his house on the sand. And everything was great until adversity came. Everything was great until suffering, opposition, persecution came. And then the collapse of that home, Jesus said, was great. The Word of God. James 1.22. Don't just listen to God's Word. You must do what it says. Verse 25. And if you do what it says, God will bless you for doing it, for doing it, not knowing it, doing it. So that was the first factor. His life, his character was shaped by God's Word. Second, his mission was inspired and accomplished through prayer. Nehemiah didn't initiate this. This was initiated by God as he went down into one of his servants' hearts, and he gave him this burden. He gave them this vision to accomplish this work for God. This was God's work. Nehemiah was merely the instrument. And the interesting thing is, the book of Nehemiah opens in a prayer, it closes in a prayer, and there are 12 different prayers that Nehemiah prays in this one book. And I know we've already talked some about prayer, but let me just say a couple more things before we move on. Listen now. Listen, prayer is not trying to bend God's will to my will. Prayer is bowing my will to God's will. Prayer is not trying to persuade God to do something that he's reluctant to do. Prayer is cooperating with God to accomplish what he longs to do. And what God longs to do is to put Jesus Christ on display for Jesus Christ to be honored, adored, worshipped, delighted in by all men. For he desires that none be lost, but all come to the knowledge of the truth. See, the purpose of prayer is to get you and me plugged into the person and power of God to be a light for Christ, to be able to live for Jesus in every circumstance, to love like Christ in all relationships, to look to Him in all decisions, and to lean on Him in all challenges. Do you want to see what real prayer looks like? Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 12, and let's be instructed by our Master, by our Savior. John chapter 12. I wish I could go a little bit more into the context, but let's just jump right into it. Look at verse 27. This is Jesus. 
John 12, 27. He says, now my soul has become troubled. Now, why is his soul troubled? He knows he's about to go to the cross. He knows what that will mean as he bears the sin of the world. And it's just not the physical pain. It's just not the torture. But it would be the fact as sin bearer, his father would forsake him. That his father would turn on him. And he would become the object of the fury of his father's wrath as he paid for the penalty of your sin and my sin. And he had never known anything but perfect fellowship with his father. So he says, my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Don't you love that? And then he acknowledges further down, verse 32, and if I be lifted from the earth, will, uh, and, if, uh, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw what? All men to myself. Why don't we see more power in prayer? Because God is waiting for his people to get to the place where like Christ, the issue is no longer what I want, but what God wills. Because Jesus carried this out. Remember in Gethsemane, he said what? Not my will, but what? Thine be done. See, he's waiting for us to get to the place where the question is no longer, how can I escape this mess, but how can God be glorified in this mess? See, that's what Jesus is saying. Shall I say, Father, save me? No, how can I do that? This is the purpose of my life. Therefore, Father, glorify thy name. Manifest yourself. Put yourself on display through me. Use my death as an instrument to bring salvation to a lost humanity. The third thing that you can attribute to his great success is that his leadership was built on integrity. His leadership was built on integrity. In other words, Nehemiah gave the people an example worth following. He was the real deal. In Philippians 4, 9, Paul wrote, and folks, we need to be able to say this to one another. As parents, we need to be able to say this to our children. As grandparents, we need to say this, be able to say this to our grandchildren. The things you have learned and received... And heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace shall be with you. In 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Paul wrote, be an imitator of me. Why? Just as I am of Christ. Never forget. Never, ever forget. The God you communicate to others is not the God you talk about. It's the God whose life you live out. If I am not living out the truths that I am preaching, it will have absolutely no impact. Because you can only truly impart to others what you possess yourself. 
And this is why there's no more important ingredient in ministry or life than your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Turn to Revelation chapter 2. Jesus here in Revelation 2 gives us a clear example that this is the most important thing. It's my relationship with Christ. It's to focus on Him, to love Him, to honor Him, to adore Him, worship Him, glorify Him. Because it's in that relationship that His strength is perfected in my weakness and I can become a light for Him. And the moment I begin to drift from that focus, I become like a cut flower. You know, I just got my wife some flowers recently. And they're in the kitchen right now. And right now they look very, very beautiful, but they're cut flowers. And they're in the process of what? Decay. And eventually they are going to wither. Eventually they are going to die. They're going to become ugly. And that can happen to a believer. If I lose, leave my focus on my intimacy and my devotion to Christ. Look at uh, Revelation chapter 2. Let's begin reading verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? The angel would be to the pastor of the church in Ephesus. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Remember, he's giving a message to seven churches. Those seven stars represent uh, the, the messengers that God is using to lead those churches. The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The lampstands represent the seven churches. And this is what he says to the church at Ephesus. And remember, this was a great church. Do you know who the first three pastors of this church were? were the Apostle Paul, Timothy, and the Apostle John. How would you like to have those three guys as your pastor? He says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot endure evil men and you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance. They have been steadfast, immovable in the work of the Lord. And you've endured for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. In other words, you've been faithful to serve the cause of Christ. You've been faithful to stand on the truth of Christ. You've been uh, faithful to suffer for the name of Christ. But then don't miss verse 4. But I have this against you. That you have left your first love. And don't think this is just any little thing, because look at his warning. Remember, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Referring to the fact they'll lose their influence, their impact, their testimony. There's nothing more important than maintaining Jesus Christ as your first love, your greatest passion and pursuit. And again, we do not need to make this difficult. Most of us understand this. You know, most of us have experienced love in the earthly realm. Uh, I can remember when uh, Kathy and I began to date. I mean, it's very, very simple. She had my attention. Even when I was not with Kathy, I was thinking about Kathy. She had my affections, and I found a great joy to express those affections and my love for her. And then as we grew in that relationship, she came to have my allegiance as I was willing to say, I do, to forsake all others, to remain faithful to you. 
Folks, it is so sad when Andy Merritt can go a day or two days or three days, and I never think about Jesus. I never commune to Jesus. See, that's what he desires, that I develop an intimate relationship with him where I practice his presence, where he has my attention, he has my affections, and he has my allegiance, and he has my attention and my affections and my allegiance over any other relationship in my life. And again, please understand, it doesn't minimize these other relationships. As I maintain that relationship, only then can I love this woman as she ought to be loved, as Christ loved the church. Only as I maintain my relationship with Jesus, putting him first place, can I truly be that example worth following for my children and my grandchildren, for this church family, to a lost world. So it's not minimizing those other things. It's actually showing their value and their importance and the way to be able to have influence, the way to have impact and to know God's blessing on all those other relationships, on your work, on, in school, wherever it might be. Wherever it might be. And very, very quickly, well, let's move to five. I wish I could say just a little bit more, but let's move to five. Power to complete God's work is found in the unity of God's workers. As they lay aside differences that could divide in order to come together for God's glory to complete God's work. There is no more damning sin in the life of the church than disunity. You know, people will talk about adultery, they'll talk about drunkenness, they'll talk about this or this, but disunity has done more to divide, damage, and bring reproach upon the name of Christ than any other sin throughout church history. And, you, and the reason is very obvious. Jesus said it would be by your love for one another, by your unity, that the world will see my reality. That's how you demonstrate my authenticity. That's what gives you credibility as you share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. So if you destroy that, you've destroyed your testimony. You've destroyed the very power and ministry of the church. Look at Psalm 133 as we close. It is one of my favorite psalms. Very short little psalm, but it's beautiful. And we'll stop right here. Psalm 133, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there, where, where people, his people dwell in unity, there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. Do you see what he's saying? Mount Hermon was the uh, tallest, is the tallest mountain peak in the Middle East. And because of its height, it stays snow-capped year-round. And because of the very uh, unique uh, atmospheric conditions, 
uh, it creates dues every day, very heavy, plentiful dues, something like we've never seen here in the States. And Mount Hermon is, is in the middle of a wilderness, of a desert area. But Mount Hermon itself is, is abundant with life. It's like an oasis in the middle of this wilderness and de- uh, desolate situation uh, with plant life and animal life abundant. And you say, how? The answer is the dues of Hermon. And God is saying, that's what unity is like. When my people dwell together in unity, you're going to know the power of the Holy Spirit. You're going to know my life falling on you and bringing showers and bringing refreshment. And you will be an oasis of Jesus to a lost world. But don't forget the other side of the coin. If we're not walking in unity, we're not that oasis. We're barren, and we have nothing to offer, and that is the importance of unity. Father, uh, wonderful lessons from old Nehemiah um, that we can apply to our lives today, and Lord, give us grace. As we often acknowledge, Lord, true change comes from the inside out. And, Lord, that's beyond our power to do that. That has to be a work of the Holy Spirit. But in that work, you expect us to surrender, to yield, to give you the freedom, to take whatever measures necessary to bring us to the brokenness of our pride and selfishness, to where we would be tender in your hands, offering you less and less resistance, to be pliable, to be fashionable, to be molded into an instrument where Jesus would increase while we decrease, an instrument that would be filled with the very life, light, and love of Jesus. And then, Lord, we acknowledge, yes, you use adversity, you use suffering, you use opposition, you use persecution to break our frail clay pots, to release that life, life, and love of Jesus upon a lost world. So, Father, use us. As death works in us, may life work in others. So, Lord, grow us. Lord, take these truths that we've shared and burn them into our hearts that we would not merely know them, but as we discuss to do them, to live them, that we would become walking, living epistles of this truth. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. The way we're going to close the service today is by another beautiful uh, worship song. I just want to give you an opportunity to worship in light of what we've heard about the greatness and awesomeness of our God. I know there's been conviction today, but even in your conviction, the answer is turning to Jesus, (laughs) turning to Him. You can't bring change in your own strength. It's only through Him. So we want to right now just turn our eyes to Him and praise the Holy One. And that he's at work in our lives. Of course, I'll be standing here to greet anyone that have a decision of any nature, uniting with the church, desiring to come to know Jesus, whatever it might be. But I simply want us to close right now by standing and uniting, uniting our hearts in a love for Jesus to honor and glorify him and sing this together. Amen. So let's really praise him from our hearts right now. Stand with me.